ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Is it incredible good fortune or is there no such thing as luck? Greetings, I'm Tom Gilson, and today on ID the Future, we hear Casey Luskin speaking on the good earth, insights from geology on the design of our planet for life. It's a talk he gave at the 2022 Dallas Conference on Science and Faith. In this second portion of the talk, he continues the theme of the first part heard in an earlier ID the Future episode. This planet we live on is astonishingly well-suited for life and beautiful besides. Casey Luskin holds a doctorate in geology from the University of Johannesburg with a specialty in paleomagnetism and plate tectonics. He's done geological research with the Scripps Institution for Oceanography, and he's the associate director of the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute. As a bonus for this episode, we'll also hear a most interesting Q&A session that followed his talk in Dallas. Okay, so let's talk about the atmosphere. Um, So many aspects of the Earth's atmosphere are well-designed for life. So everybody take a deep breath, right? Isn't it wonderful that we have this air to breathe? We take air for granted, but we, we, we don't appreciate just how many aspects of Earth's atmosphere were specially crafted so we could be here and take those deep breaths. So let's talk first about the idea of atmospheric pressure. Atmospheric pressure, if you think back to your your high school physics, is the force per unit area exerted against an object by the air as gravity pulls that air downward towards the Earth, okay? So atmospheric pressure is very important. If we have too much pressure or too little pressure, the atmosphere is not habitable for life. And it turns out that there are many Goldilocks criteria about the Earth's atmosphere that have to be just right or life cannot exist. So what about atmospheric pressure? Well, the air pressure must be light enough to allow for evaporation to happen, and heavy enough to destroy asteroids. Okay, so why are these parameters important? Let me go through these very briefly. Evaporation is important because evaporation is what drives the water cycle. It starts with evaporation from the oceans, and then, of course, the the water vapor that evaporates into the atmosphere forms clouds, which then rains upon the Earth, and that, of course, allows plants to grow and allows all the organisms that live on on the terrestrial uh, side of the planet to live. And then that water is returned into the oceans through uh, streams and currents and lakes and so forth and rivers. And then it flows back into the oceans where it provides nutrients for living organisms in the oceans because we all know that fish eat donuts and hamburgers. Um, Okay, so that's the water cycle. If we did not, if the, if, the, if the atmospheric pressure was too great, we could not have evaporation to drive the water cycle. What about um, the, the uh, atmosphere being not too dense to allow for uh, the destruction of asteroids? Well, between 2000 and 2013, I was really shocked when I heard this, 26 asteroids hit Earth with energies of 1 to 600 kilotons. And just for comparison, the Hiroshima bomb was 15 kilotons, okay? But because of our thick atmosphere, most of these exploded in the upper atmosphere with no damage to the Earth's surface. Okay, so the atmosphere is thick enough to not prevent uh, evaporation, but to destroy the vast majority of asteroids before they hit the Earth's surface. And this is very important for allowing a habitable planet. What about the uh, Earth's gravity related to the atmosphere? The Earth's gravity must be strong enough to prevent losing crucial gases from the atmosphere, like oxygen and nitrogen, but it has to be weak enough 
to allow for the loss of highly flammable, light, volatile gases that are not really that important for life. So in the book, How to Build a Habitable Planet, they explain what we're talking about here. The ability of a planet to hold its gases is strongly dependent upon its gravity. While Earth and Venus are massive enough to hold all but the lightest gases, the Moon and Mercury have insufficient gravity to hold any gas. Thus, Earth and Venus have substantial atmospheres, while the Moon and Mercury have none. It's important to have the right gravity to be able to hold on to your atmosphere, but you don't want it to be too strong because there are some elements that you don't want to build up in the atmosphere, like hydrogen and helium. You want those to be lost. What about the composition of the atmosphere? Well, obviously, oxygen is very important for the atmosphere for advanced life. But how much oxygen, uh, and, or, or how little oxygen? The amount of oxygen also has to be precisely balanced in the same kind of Goldilocks fashion. And it turns out that the partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere has to be high enough to sustain biological respiration. Obviously, if there's too little oxygen in the atmosphere, then we're not going to be able to breathe. But if the oxygen level is too high, then actually bad things will happen. Number one is you could have more likelihood of explosions. Okay? If the oxygen level is too great, then lightning strikes would actually ignite the atmosphere and cause fires to burn out of control and there would be huge explosions. Another problem is that too much oxygen is actually toxic to life. Um, this would be, gets kind of serious for a moment, but if any of you have had any friends or family that have been on ventilators or respirators during this whole COVID epi epidemic, well, you know that it actually is not good to be on pure oxygen for too long. It's highly damaging to a person's body. Um, and in fact, free radicals, this is what the problem of free radicals are. You guys have heard about that. Free radicals will uh, steal electrons from organic materials and damage them. So if we have too much oxygen in the atmosphere, then uh, that is very damaging to life. Uh, and this book, Oxygen, The Molecule That Made the World, says that under present conditions, most lightning strikes do not start fires because forest vegetation is damp, especially when electrical storms are accompanied by torrential rain. But if wet organic matter burns freely in the air, containing more than 25% oxygen, as we were told, then given an atmosphere with such levels, lightning could trigger, trigger conflagrations even in rainforests. So you don't want too much oxygen or the world will burn out of control. So Earth's atmosphere has about 21% oxygen, right in the sweet spot between 17% and 25%. But what is the other 79% of the atmosphere? I mean, we think, does it even matter? Well, it turns out that it's 78% nitrogen, about 0.9% argon, and 0.1% other gases. So if 78% of our atmosphere is nitrogen, which is not needed for respiration, does this mean that Earth's atmosphere was not designed with life in mind? Is this sort of this arbitrary property of life or of the Earth that's not important for life? Well, it turns out the exact opposite is true. But let's pretend for a moment that we don't know anything about nitrogen being that 78% of the atmosphere and we're terraforming a planet. So what gas do we want to have to compose the other 78%? We're going to try to choose a good gas. What constraints are we under for what that gas has to be able to do to make a habitable planet? Well, constraint number one is you need some gas that can dilute the oxygen. Too much oxygen, again, will be very damaging to life and cause huge fires and explosions. Constraint number two is you want that gas to be diatomic, meaning there are two atoms per molecule, because monatomic molecules with just one atom won't block harmful EM radiation. But triatomic molecules are greater. Those with three or more atoms will act as greenhouse gases, and you don't want too much greenhouse effect. Um, constraint number three is the gas must also have a density and polarity similar to oxygen. So it mixes well with oxygen and doesn't stratify the atmosphere. Let's talk about this third constraint very quickly here. 
you want a gas that is going to play well with oxygen, that's going to mix well with it. If you have too much oxygen in the lower troposphere, this could again lead to fires and explosions at the surface and also toxicity to life. But if the uh, atmosphere is stratified in the other way, where all the oxygen is at the top, then whatever gas you have at the bottom, if there's too little oxygen in it, in the lower troposphere, then that would make respiration impossible and advanced life cannot exist. So you need a gas with a good density match to oxygen. And my colleague and friend at Andrews University, uh, who's a professor of chemistry there, Ryan Hayes, gave me some fantastic points. I'll give him credit for this. He found, he looked at all the different gases that could be chosen among various gases that we know of from planets and other uh, celestial bodies in our solar system. And it turns out that nitrogen and oxygen are by far the closest. If you have a, a gas that's too light, then again, it'll sink up to the top of the atmosphere and oxygen will be at the bottom. You'll have a stratified atmosphere. If a gas is too heavy, to, it, it will not mix with the oxygen. Again, it will sink to the bottom. All the oxygen will go to the top. It'll become a layered atmosphere and you will not have oxygen to breathe at the surface of the Earth. So nitrogen and oxygen have very similar gas densities. They mix very well. Nitrogen is a great choice. It turns out, though, that we just talked about three of the constraints that are needed for this other 78% of the atmosphere. There are many other constraints. It has to be non-toxic, non-flammable, hard to liquefy so it doesn't form oceans. It needs to be transparent to the right types of light that are needed for uh, life on Earth. It needs to be non-reactive and acidifying. It needs to have low solubility in, in water, otherwise it'll dominate the oceans. It also has to be usable for living organisms, okay? And it turns out, uh, this is again from my friend Ryan Hayes who did this. He studies gases, he's gone through all these different options for other gases and found that only nitrogen fulfills all of these criteria. It's very impressive work he's done. Nitrogen fulfills every one, every one of these criteria. It beats out all the other options for the 78%. And turns out that nitrogen, you may not appreciate this, being usable for living organisms is also absolutely vital for life on Earth. But why is that? Because nitrogen is an important atom in every single amino acid in your proteins and also all the nitrogenous bases in your DNA. Okay, so living organisms need nitrogen. It is a crucial element for life. And it turns out that there are certain types of bacteria and also certain plants which have a, a symbiotic relationships with bacteria to take nitrogen from the atmosphere and fix it into their amino acids and nitrogenous bases. Those then allow nitrogen to enter the biosphere. We eat these organisms, we eat these plants, and we can get nitrogen into our own bodies. So nitrogen is crucial for life and it's taken from the atmosphere by certain types of organisms and it's very, very important. So one last point about Earth's atmosphere. There's actually a triple convergence of the electromagnetic radiation in the visible light spectrum that is, one, needed for photosynthesis and vision, two, emitted by the sun, and three, permitted to pass through the atmosphere. Okay, so this triple convergence is also vital for life. So what am I talking about here? Well, it turns out that light is just right, has the just right chem uh, energy of the photonic energy to stimulate the kinds of biochemistry, controlled chemical reactions that can slightly modify organic chemistry, has just the right activation energy to allow for these uh, chemical reactions to take place. And we're talking about uh, vision and photosynthesis. So visible light matches the energy of useful biochemistry. Photosynthesis uses the blue and red frequencies of visible light where the green is reflected. 
So that's what life needs to perform light-stimulated and also forming vitamin D, I should add, as well, um, forming light-necessary chemical reactions that are light-stimulated. Also, the sun emits a very broad spectrum of EM radiation, but the peak is in the visible range, just where we need it, okay? So you can find these kind of diagrams all over the internet. The peak of the wavelengths that are emitted by uh, our sun peaks in the visible range of light, okay? Um, and then, of course, the atmosphere has to allow this visible light to pass through. And this diagram shows the light that is blocked by the atmosphere, or that's why I should say the EM radiation that is blocked by the atmosphere, but there's a huge hole in the blockage right where visible light is, and it allows it to pass through almost entirely. Okay, so light is just right for this triple convergence of the energy output from the sun, the, win the window that the atmosphere allows through, and the controlled chemical reactions of life. And also, as I said, vitamin D is uh, stimulated by visible light. I'm going to get as much vitamin T as I'm down here. They say vitamin D is really important during the pandemic. I haven't seen the sun in weeks in Seattle, let me tell you. So I mean, if you see me walking outside kind of like aimlessly for the next couple days, I'm just trying to get vitamin D before I go home. So there's a beautiful convergence between sun's energy, the atmospheric window, and EM radiation mediated by chemical reactions. Last topic here, Goldilocks to the third power. Let's put all this together and show how plate tectonics, water, and the right atmosphere help provide our planet with a global thermostat, okay? So it turns out all these different elements we're talking about work together to keep our planet as a at a constant temperature. Here's how it works. If it's too hot, then you get more rain and more weathering. That then tends to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through a process where rainwater interacts with rock and the Earth then cools because you're losing this greenhouse gas. And what happens then, as the CO2 is removed from the atmosphere through the weathering of rock, it then travels down through streams and rivers as calcium carbonate um, and gets locked up in limestone sediments in the ocean, okay? And the Earth cools, all right? So if it's too hot, we draw CO2 out of the atmosphere and the Earth cools down. Then what happens is this limestone sediment, meanwhile deep in the earth, limestone sediment is subducted and melted, and then carbon returns to the surface in magma where it erupts. And what happens then? Well, if the earth is too cool, right, then there's less rain and less weathering, so you don't have this process of removing CO2 from the atmosphere. And as CO2 is erupted out of volcanoes through plate tectonics, it then builds up in the atmosphere, and the earth warms. So you have too much CO2, it is then drawn out of the atmosphere. If you have too little, then it builds up and it keeps the Earth at a constant temperature. So I think this is really incredible that plate tectonics recycles carbon, atmosphere with CO2 greenhouse gas, and liquid water in large amounts allows this convergence, which yields a global thermostat that, that keeps our planet at a constant temperature. So Earth, let's talk about some of how the properties that make Earth special. It's the only terrestrial planet in the solar system with a strong magnetic field. It's the only planet in the solar system with plate tectonics. It's the only terrestrial planet with large amounts of water. And it's the only uh, planet that we know of that has an N2O2 atmosphere capable of supporting advanced life. And then finally, as far as this global thermostat goes, it's hard to imagine it happening anywhere else because of all these unique properties only appearing on Earth. So Earth appears uniquely well-designed for life. In fact, a, a book came out a couple years ago titled Lucky Planet, which said that Earth was blessed with incredible good fortune, giving it 
all the right properties to sustain a complex and beautiful biosphere. Earth is a strange place, perhaps the luckiest planet in the visible universe. Well, this reminded me of a, a little scene from Star Wars where Obi-Wan Kenobi is having a, a metaphysical debate with Han Solo. Of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi believes in the Force. Han Solo is kind of like a materialist and a skeptic. And Han Solo says, look, I just need to use my own wit and my own guile to get by. I hope that the sound works. If it doesn't, I'll tell you what it says. But Obi-Wan says, he says, in thing as luck. Let me play this again. In my experience, there's no such thing as luck. Okay, so there you go. So we may be a lucky, lucky planet, but in my experience, there's no such thing as luck. We are not just lucky. We were designed to have all these parameters to create a place where life could exist. I'm going to fly through this last batch of slides here because this is something that's special that I've, I've never actually presented this publicly. These are a different class of design arguments, you guys. These are aesthetic arguments for design. Not so, so, so take off your scientific hat for a moment and pretend you're in an art museum, all right? So this is a rock that I studied during my PhD, all right? It's a really ugly, boring-looking rock. I sampled this in Swaziland. Every geologist has to go through this rite of passage. You sample a rock, you take it back, you have a thin section microscope slide created of the rock, and then you look at it under a mi rock microscope. And it turns out that when you look at these rock thin sections under microscopes, it is like looking at stained glass windows, okay? So God has like a 24-7 tour of stained glass windows seeing what's inside of rocks. And we look at these rocks and we think that they're like the most boring rocks you might just kick down the street while you're walking along. But I'm telling you, you look at these rock microscope slides and they will blow your mind. They look like art that you would see in a museum. And so I have no art background whatsoever. But when I was going, these are all slides from my own PhD work that I did. And I felt like it looked like the kind of art that you would see in a museum. You have impressionists. I'm just going to fly through these, okay? You have stained glass windows. You have, I guess you could call this modern art, you know, something really funky or weird. You have Andy Warhol pop art with all these psychedelic colors. And then you have cubism. <laughs> so I'm no art expert, but I think that these are very different styles of art that are found in these. And it's really quite incredible. Some of these are beyond classification. I don't know what you would call this. Maybe somebody can tell me if this resembles some form of art. But I just think that these are incredibly beautiful. In fact, I showed these to a family member, and she broke down in tears after just appreciating the beauty that has been found in the most mundane rocks you could possibly imagine, even things that look like characters. So thank you. I would say that Earth is not just a privileged planet, but it's a beautiful one. I've always wanted to say this in Texas. Thank you, and may the force be with y'all. And now we transition to a question and answer session led by John West, Managing Director of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. I have to admit that I would prefer for the personal God to be with you than an impersonal force. Amen to that. Um, Amen in to any that. case, uh, I should have uh, told you in my prep that you should expect the most mind-blowing information per second <laughs> in this talk. Because Casey, I think in his alternate life, uh, should have been maybe uh, an auctioneer or a, or well, a I said, dance caller. I sent or, Pam um, on a hunt for a Coke this afternoon for me, and that was a real mistake. So <laughs> okay. apologize. So we have fault. just a few minutes for questions, but uh, you've gotten a lot of really challenging questions, Casey. So I'm just going to mm. run through them, and if you don't have anything to say, you can pass on some oh, of these. Uh, would Earth's location in the local bubble, low density of objects relative to the rest of our galaxy, suggest intentional placement and privilege. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I, again, going back to Carl Sagan, he said that we live in this humdrum location in our galaxy that doesn't matter. That is hardly the case. We are located between the spiral arms of a galaxy. That means, number one, there's not as much radiation in this part of the galaxy. We're, we're far from the galactic core, so we're, we're removed from radiation. We're also in a location where you can see the stars. If we were in one of the spiral arms, there would be too much dust, and you would not be able to do astronomy. So I, I did not come up with these arguments. These were from Guillermo Gonzalez and Jay Richards in their book, The Privileged Planet, which I highly recommend on this topic. But, but yeah, uh, we are certainly located in a special location in the galaxy that is well-designed for life. Don't listen to any materialist who tells you that you know, we're in this unimportant location. How does Uranus have a magnetic field with no liquid core? That's a really good question, and I don't know the answer. I, in fact, I have a feeling that I'm going to speculate here that nobody is really sure what the answer is to that. Um, we know that it has a magnetic field because we've been able to measure it when we've sent satellites to the outer solar system. So uh, these may be questions that are yet to be resolved, um, but I'll Google that when I get home, and you should too. I don't know the answer. Okay. Does the rate of recycling nutrients due to tectonics match the rate of depletion? Well, it, it, it must, or else it wouldn't work. So <laughs> um, I, I assume the answer is yes, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go on a limb there and say the answer has to be yes, yeah. How does Uranus's severely tilted magnetic poles and the resulting plasmoids of its atmosphere thrown into space exist with such specific designs for planets? I, I don't know the answer to that one either. <laughs> could the surprising I'm sure amount, anybody knows. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure, uh, could the surprising amount? I told you these were tough questions. <laughs> could the surprising amount of water on Earth have been delivered by a collision with the hypothetical planet? Thea in the distant past. So uh, the, the, the Thea hypothesis is this idea that when Earth was forming in its early stages, another planetary body hit it and then caused a bunch of matter to eject, and that matter then condensed into the moon. Um, and so what is the question? <laughs> <laughs> I already uh, moved into another kind of, uh, How does... Uh, could the surprising amount of water oh. on Earth have been delivered by a collision yeah. with the hypothetical planet? So I, I suppose it could, but one of the problems is that the moon is thought to have a very similar bulk composition to, at least it's, supposed to, it's thought to be composed of material that is inner solar system material, okay? So given that it comes from inner solar system material, you're going to come up against the same problem of you have to explain how water got you know, locked up in an inner solar system body that formed the moon. So you're, you're going to keep bumping up against the same problem either way, if you, even if you like the Thea hypothesis. You have some interesting followers, Casey. We just received a message from Darth Vader saying, may the force be with you. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> and, also, and also with you. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, this is a more uh, serious question. Uh, uh, is not Dr. Luskin arguing from what is to its probability, and can't this be done for any phenomenon? So I think the idea is, well, of course we have those special properties because, well, they're not special because they just is, and so you're arguing from that to its probability. Well, I mean, if, if habitable planets are very common in the universe, then we could say that Earth is improbable. So far, from what we've seen, we have at least eight or nine planets, depending on how you want to go in our solar system to study, and there's nothing that is anywhere like Earth, providing you know, even just a few of the necessary criteria for habitability. So that makes us think that Earth is special in having these criteria. So I'm not just saying that Earth is, what I'm saying is we can look at the planets that exist, 
and we can see that habitability seems to be very rare. Now, we're now starting to find a lot of extrasolar planets um, in other solar systems very far away. And what we're finding is that the vast majority of the planets that we're discovering tend to be these gas giants. Okay, planets that don't have, that really cannot meet any of these criteria needed for habitability. So we're yet to find a planet, you know, there's, there's a couple that have been discovered potentially within the circumstellar habitable zone, but they typically, again, are going to be gas giants. Um, we're not finding planets that, are, that seem to be habitable for life on, in these extrasolar planets. I think as time goes on, we're going to get a better, better handle on just how uh, common habitable planets are. But from what we know right now, they seem to be very, very rare. How do we even know about the different layers of the Earth if we can't travel that deep? That's a great question. One of the main reasons that we know about the layers of the Earth is through seismicity. Whenever an earthquake happens, the seismic waves travel through the Earth, and we can figure out where on the Earth the earthquake occurred, and then we can see how other stations, other seismic stations on the Earth, pick up those seismic waves. And we can then calculate the density of the rock that those seismic waves traveled through, and also the kind of rock, whether it's solid or, or liquid iron in the core, based upon the kind of waves that uh, arrive at those other seismic stations around the Earth. And it is actually through that that we've been able to determine that the outer core is liquid. We've been able to determine the density of the mantle. We've been able to even determine potentially the temperature of the mantle. There's a lot we can learn about the interior of the Earth, and also the, the density and the structure of the core. There's a lot we've been able to determine about the interior of the Earth by looking at seismic waves. I think uh, this session, you, you also win the award for the most interesting questions. Uh, would the inner core of Earth be a good candidate for hell? Oh my. Well, the, the inner, as far as we know, the inner core of the Earth is completely solid. So it's not a good place to be, you know, I don't know what's in hell, but if there are, you need space for things to exist, then yeah. But uh, I, I think that if you want to have beings in the interior of the Earth, as far as we know, it's either, you know, a solid, uh, solid rock or there's liquid molten there. So uh, I'm not an expert in hell and I don't plan on becoming one either. So I don't okay. know the answer to this, to this um, question. Uh, we are uh, about out of time, but I will do one last question that someone asked that I thought was really interesting tie into the last, very last section of your talk. Luke 1940 says, the very stones would cry out. What do you think about the idea of creation praising God, perhaps in more literal ways than previously thought? Well, look, I am a Christian, and I don't believe that we're the result of an impersonal force. I believe that we are the result of a loving God. And when I look, you know, sometimes people will say, well, maybe the universe was uh, designed by a God who doesn't care, or maybe life was designed by aliens. Well, I'm sorry, but aliens cannot account for the design of the universe and all the fine-tuning of the cosmic laws. And I don't think that an impersonal God would take so much care not just to create a universe and then leave it alone. That's not what we see happening. What we see is great care was taken in making our specific planet. Literally, the air that you're breathing right now is, is just the, the Goldilocks mix of gases that are needed to sustain advanced life. So I think a lot of care shows that we are created, this planet was not just created by a supreme being, but a supreme being that loves us very much, a personal God and a theistic God. So I think that that, that is the best explanation for the, the world that we see. Final comment comes from one of the... Um uh, one of the people who are listening either here or, or elsewhere, famous baseball coach Branch Rickey said, luck is the residue of design. Loved your talk. Thank you. There you are. And I'm a Dodgers thank, fan, thank so you. thanks for signing thank Branch you. Rickey. Okay.
That was Dr. Casey Luskin speaking on the Good Earth Insights from Geology on the Design of Our Planet for Life, the second part of a talk that he gave at the Dallas Conference on Science and Faith, with a Q&A moderated by John West. We appreciate your joining with us here at ID the Future and learning more about intelligent design. We'd be grateful if you'd take a moment and give this podcast a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you're listening on right now. For ID the Future, this is Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.